Amen. You may be seated. He flipped his page, and I thought, ooh, yeah, we're going to keep on going. I was so into that worship. <laughs> but no. Oh, OCD. Oh. <laughs> He's getting ready for the song after. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning. Again, I just want to wish you a Merry Christmas. And I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to 1 John chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at specifically uh, verses 1 to 7 this morning. And uh, I just, uh, I want to read to you specifically uh, verses 6 and 7, and then we'll pray and we'll ask God to help us understand this word uh, that he's speaking to us this morning. So if you would, uh, look with me in 1 John uh, chapter, uh, chapter 1, uh, verses 6 and 7. The Apostle John says, if we say we have fellowship with him, with God, And do not, sorry, I I skipped it. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Father in heaven, we just say thank you so much for your word. You speak and your word brings light into the darkness. And your son himself is light. He is the revelation of you, God, the almighty God, the only true God who is light. And he brings the truth of you and the light of you and the goodness of you into this broken and dark world. We just say thank you. And Father, as your light shines all around us, as John has also written in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, our prayer this morning is that we would come to that light. If there are any here this morning who do not know what it means to walk in the light, to live in the light as you, Heavenly Father, are light, I pray, God, that your spirit would illuminate the text here that you would shine brightly into the hearts and minds of all who are gathered here, that we all may know and be reminded once again what it means to have fellowship. God, drive this truth home into our hearts this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. As those of you who are regular attenders or members here know, um, I love Christmas. I love it. And uh, making merry at Christmas time is a very serious business at my house. Uh, I put up the lights, I do the tree, I decorate everything. We're going to do a minimum of five weeks. I want to keep Christmas special so I don't leave the Christmas lights up all year long, like we're very tempted to do. But uh, about four and a half, five weeks out, I set up the tree, I light it up, I set up the lights on the house. I want to light up that house in the dark of winter. And the reason for that is because I have, over the many, many years that I've been walking with Christ, noticed that there's this metaphor that is used throughout Scripture, but particularly in the Apostle John's writings, this metaphor of light that is used to describe God, to describe what it's like to have a relationship with God, that's used to describe how we are called by God to respond to His Son, Jesus Christ. And as Jesus has become the enduring treasure of my life, that's my prayer for you this morning, so you would know what it means 
to know Jesus and to walk in the light. And with that in mind, I want you to look at 1 John. It's not your traditional Christmas passage. It's not uh, the nativity scene with the shepherds and, and the angels and all of the things going on there, but it is still a Christmas passage. And in fact, I think these verses, 1 to 7, give us in a very concise form the fullest picture of the doctrine of Christmas. And so we want to start off our Advent series this morning looking at this, and so I invite you to look with me. John says a couple of things in what is known as the prologue. The prologue is sort of his unofficial introduction to what he's about to deal with more in depth throughout the rest of the book. But in the first four verses, he gives his prologue or his introduction to his theme. And he says in the first four verses, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, This life was made manifest. And he goes back and he says, we've seen it and we testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. It isn't enough that we've seen it. It isn't enough that we've heard it. We have seen it. We have heard it, but we preach it to you. He says, we preach it to you that you too may have fellowship. And you'd expect him to say fellowship with God. Indeed, that is his goal. But he doesn't say fellowship with God. He says, we preach it to you that you too may have fellowship with us. I want you to just linger on that for a moment. It's a startling statement. But the thrust of what John is saying here is in Christ, in the proclamation of eternal life, in the proclamation of the Son, we share something and we want to share it. We want to share it with you. He goes on. He says, indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. But then verse 4 gives the purpose for why he's writing this book. He says, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now, that's an interesting line of thought, indeed. When we think of Christmas, we understand it is the time of the birth of Christ, and that is spectacular. But Christ has come to accomplish a serious work, which should result in serious joy. Let's look at verse 1. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, this is what we're proclaiming to you. He's getting ready to say. Now, as it is the Christmas time, undoubtedly, all of us are going to be going to Christmas parties, work, colleague parties, this sort of thing. I remember a number of years ago, I was at a Christmas party for my wife. This is back when we were living in Texas, and uh, her, she was working at a greenhouse, and they had a, a party for all the greenhouse workers, and we got together at somebody's house, and we were having a Christmas party, and somebody comes up to me, and they, says, they say to me, Josh, tell me, who are you? Who am I? It's a deep philosophical question. He was asking it in a deep philosophical manner, But I'm not always that deep or philosophical, especially when we're drinking eggnog, okay? So I said to him, well, I'm a guy holding a glass of eggnog. That's who I am. And he says, yes, yes, but who 
are you? Okay, one of these types. So I'm like, well, you know, I'm, I'm Josh Claycamp. I was born to Kathy and Virgil, you know. Uh, I'm, I'm from Dripping Springs, Texas. He says, yeah, but who are you? Hmm, who are you? And I said, well, I mean, I'm a Christian. That's the most important thing about me. I love Jesus. He says, that's very important. That's very deep. But who are you? And in my head, I'm thinking, I'm the guy that's about to smack you. That's who I am. <laughs> you know, it's a, I didn't know this at the time, but I, I got to reading about it. And uh, years later, I, I stumbled across this thing. It's actually a Freudian question. It's something that Sigmund Freud would use in his psychoanalysis uh, and the whole thing is bunk. Don't get me wrong. Don't, and don't do this. You know, when you go to Christmas parties this year, don't. It's not cool. Like, it's not cool. Um, you know, the idea here is that we're some deep, vast, mysterious ocean of complexities. And, and uh, we have to really think about who we are deep down in our soul and all of this. Guys, it's not that complicated. It's actually a form of pride and vainglory where you make yourself into some vast, deep ocean of wonder and intrigue and mystery. And you have to pierce to the depths of it. Look, it's not that hard. We're all sinners, okay? And we all have a penchant for pride and exalting ourselves and glorying in ourselves. And the scripture makes it real clear to us you're a sinner. And you're nobody without Jesus Christ. If you're anything, it is because you know the Lord. And if you don't know the Lord, you're not at all what God wants you to be. This question, though, is at the heart of what John is saying. If we were to ask that question about ourselves, who are you? Well, in all honesty, it's real simple. But when we ask the question about Jesus, who are you? Wow, now we have truly stepped into an ocean that deserves great contemplation and meditation. You and I are very simple. We deceive ourselves into thinking we're complex when we're not. But Jesus truly is mystery of mysteries, fully God and fully man. God come in the flesh. And John says, we've seen him. We've seen God. And you'll recall back when Moses was talking to God, thank you, back when Moses was talking to God, Moses said to God, I, I want to see your glory. And God's response to Moses was, nobody can see my glory and live because we are sinful and God is holy. And so we can't see God's glory and live but God, because he loves us, has entered into this world in the form of Jesus. And the same person who wrote the letter of 1 John, the Apostle John, wrote the Gospel of John. And in the Gospel of John, he says the same thing. No one has seen his glory. No one can see it. But in Jesus, we have beheld the glory, the glory as of the only begotten Son of God. This is the mystery of, Christ, of, Christ, of Christmas. And over the years, this doctrine ought to shape us the more we think about it. I'm sure you've heard this expression. I've heard it too many times uh, in which a person will say, you know, I'm not sure what I really make of all this Christmas hocus pocus that you Christians are into. I'm not sure whether I believe in the virgin birth of Mary. I'm not sure whether I believe in God coming and being incarnated and taking on human flesh. I'm just not sure that any of these things are true. But even if they are true, the, the statement often comes, I'm not sure that it really matters. Even if these things are true, isn't it really the case that what matters most 
is that we live a good life? That's the response. The response is, I'm not sure that these things matter, that I think what matters is that we just live a good life. I don't really think it's important to believe in doctrine. Now, what's ironic is that statement, I don't think it's important to believe in doctrine, is itself a statement of doctrine. (laughs) I'm not sure whether I really believe in the virgin birth or all of these things. You may tell yourself that you're not subscribing to a particular doctrine, but you are, and you're subscribing to the wrong doctrine, and it will impact how you live. The Apostle John is writing to a church, most likely a group of churches in Asia Minor. And he's writing probably towards the end of his life, towards the end of the first century. And what has happened here is that in these churches to which John is writing, a group of individuals who would have identified themselves as Christians, they have infiltrated the church, but they have brought philosophical, platonic ideas in And they've filtered the message of Christianity through these philosophical ideas. These would be the kind of people that say, you know, who are you, you know, at Christmas parties, okay? And we understand them today as Gnostics. Gnostics take this name from the Greek word gnosko, to know, and Gnostics essentially believed that salvation was a matter of what you know doesn't matter what you do, it matters only what you know. And what I find fascinating is that I very often will go to Christmas parties, as I'm sure many of you will here in the next couple of weeks, and I will meet people and I will begin to talk with them and say, so what do you do for a living? Well, I'm a pastor. Oh, yeah, you're Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. Are you a Christian? I believe in Jesus, but I could care less for the church and you know, I don't know anything about the Bible, but, you know, I walk in the woods, and, and uh, I learn way more about God walking alone in the woods than I ever did in the church. Now, it doesn't sound exactly like what Gnostics in the first century would say, but you've just met a Gnostic. He wouldn't know himself to be a Gnostic, but he is. And he would go on to probably say something like this. You know, it doesn't really matter um, uh, how much we know. It just matters how we live. And what he means by that is that he is going to live a good life based on his definition of what is good. He's just said he doesn't know any doctrine, but he knows apparently what it means to live a good life. What he's saying then is that I understand everything I need to know and my knowledge will dictate to me how I ought to be saved. Though my knowledge is flawed, though I don't know everything, all of these admissions are made up front. And of course, as Christians, we all shrug our shoulder and say, yep, sounds good to me, right? But it doesn't sound good to the Apostle John. John is writing to combat this heresy of Gnosticism. Gnostics would say, it doesn't matter how you live. You don't have to necessarily go to church. You don't necessarily have to live a good life. You don't have to worship. You know, really, it just comes down to your knowledge, what you know. And then you can live however you want in the body. And what John is saying is, look, we've met God in the body. 
Look at what he says here. He defines it with many, many statements uh, that you could almost read these as though they were a deposition to be used in a court of law. He says it over and over again. He says, that which was from the beginning. So he's clearly identifying something infinite and eternal. He's talking about God. And this parallels, by the way, what he says in his gospel. In the beginning was the word. Here he says, we, that which was from the beginning, we have heard it. We have seen it with our eyes. We have looked upon it, and we have touched it. He's using these sensory words. He's not saying, we've known it. We've intuited this truth. We pondered, and after great meditation, we had this suddenly, this idea appear in our minds. In other words, what John is trying to say is the salvation we need is actually a person, and it's a real person, not some sort of fairy tale or mythical person like Santa Claus. It's an actual person, and we've touched him. We've looked at him. He's real in the flesh and blood. He's a real person. And he's hammering that home. And he makes this incredible statement in verse 2. The life, then, was made manifest. In other words, it was brought down among us so that we could see it, so that we could touch it. And he makes this statement. He says, and we have seen it, and we testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life. Now, as Christians, when you and I talk about eternal life, do you know what we most often mean by that statement? Talking about length. I don't want to die, I want to live forever. Well, if you believe in Jesus, you can live for eternity. We conceptualize death in terms of the number of days that we are alive. And so when we read this passage, we have a tendency to think that what John is saying is he's talking about length of life, number of days. But that's not what he's saying. He is saying, we have touched this guy. We've seen him. We know him. He is life. And this life is the life we're proclaiming to you. And this is the eternal life. The Greek word here that is translated eternal, it's talking about the essence of life the life which will endure. And what John is saying is not, he's not saying, hey, we've, we've seen this guy that lives forever because in actual fact, Jesus died. He rose from the dead. But in the context of what he's driving at here, he's not talking about living forever. He's talking about living. And he's saying, we proclaim this to you. And the reason we proclaim this to you, and here's where the thought the progression of his thought gets really interesting. The reason we're proclaiming this to you is because we want you, you'd expect him to say, we want you to have eternal life. But he says, the reason we're proclaiming this to you is so that you will fellowship with us. This is the introduction to 1 John. What I have come to realize over time, studying this book and reading this book over and over again, is that the Gospel of John is going to deal with the doctrine of Jesus Christ. And the most practical application that comes out of this book has to do with fellowship and how we fellowship as a church under the knowledge of that. You say, are you sure about that, Pastor? Indeed, I am. 
He's like, I want you guys to have fellowship with us, and I need that to happen so that my joy, our joy, he uses the plural nouns here, our joy will be complete. Well, what do you expect him to talk about? Jesus, right? He does, in the very next paragraph, Jesus plus fellowship. He says in verse 5, this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship, there's that word again, So here in the first six verses, he's just said it twice. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins. Three times in the first seven verses, he's emphasized this idea of fellowship. Now, as we look at verses five to seven, we see here that this progression of thought is moving back and forth from an understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done for us, but it's also very much so paralleling this idea that as a result of that knowledge, we ought to be engaging in a communal relationship here, which is to say eternal life, What and there are many things we can say about it, but despite the many things we can say about it, we must be sure to say this. Eternal life, the essence of life that Jesus came into this world to give to you and me is that we would have life together, that we would share together as a community, that we would be a family, the people of God. And that's what he's going to talk about here in this opening paragraph. He says a couple of things. The first thing he says is that God is light. In verse 5, it says, This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light. John makes three different statements between the Gospel of John and his letters talking about the character of who God is. Number one, he calls him spirit. We see this in chapter 4 of the Gospel of John, John chapter 4 and verse 24. He's talking to the woman at the well, and she's asking him, do we worship God on this mountain in Samaria, or do we worship him at the temple in Jerusalem? And Jesus responds, and he says, God is spirit. So the character of God is that he is spirit. The second statement he makes is that God is love. He says that here in 1 John chapter 4 and verses 7 and 8. But then here in the very first chapter, he says, God is light. This expression of light refers to the moral perfection of God. There's not one blemish. There's not one stain. There's not one mark or sin on the character of God. Metaphorically, as John is interacting with this this image of light, what John is saying is that there is no darkness in God's character whatsoever. He is absolute perfection. When you look at the sun in the sky at noon, interestingly enough, if you look at it through certain filters and whatever else on your telescope, you will be able to observe dark spots on the sun. It's a strange phenomenon, but it exists even in something as bright as our sun. And yet with God, there are no dark spots, and the illumination of who he is is infinite, pure light. Now, John could be talking about this in terms of the manifestation of his glory. Again, going back to Moses, he had a a veil that he had to use to cover his face because his face was described as literally glowing from encountering God. But that's not the way John uses it. If you work your way through, the first, through all of 1 John and the Gospel of John, you'll see over and over again he uses this metaphor of light to talk about the perfect character of God. And he is saying that God is light, 
and there is no darkness in him at all. John, this is another very interesting thing about John. He will state the positive, and to emphasize the positive, he will then immediately state its corollary in the form of a negative. In other words, God is light. He is absolute light. And then the negative of that is to say, no darkness, none, none whatsoever. John employs a double negative, in fact, here in the Greek. It doesn't read well in terms of how you'd read it from an English grammatical perspective, but it makes good sense in, in Greek grammar. And grammatically, what he's saying is, that, I mean, this is the strongest way to express the fact that there is nothing in God's character whatsoever that is flawed or impure. There's, he is absolute perfection. In him, there is no shade, no speck, no stain of moral perfection. In him, there is no fault, there is no failure, there is no falsehood. In him, there is no deceit, there is no, devia- <coughs> there is no deviation or dishonesty. Physical darkness is a terrible thing. If you're in a pitch black room, so dark that you can't see your hand in front of your face, you are constrained by what you can or you can't see. But in God, there is nothing like this. He is pure light. And this is where you'd think John would say, don't you want to walk in the light with God? And he does. But there's an unusual progression of thought here. He moves us from the doctrine of how we live or how we walk to a particular way of walking. He says, if you look in verse 5, no, no, um, yeah, yeah, verse 5, he says, this is the message that we have heard from him and we proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. That word proclaim in verse 5 is very similar to the word proclaim he used earlier in the chapter, but it's not exactly identical. This is the only time in the letter that this specific Greek word that we translate proclaim occurs, and it only differs by one letter from the Greek word that was used back in verses 1 to 3. And you're probably wondering, what is the significance of this, and why are you drawing this out for us? Well, because of the change in this word, the way it is first used, way back in the beginning in the, in the prologue, in which he says that what we've seen we proclaim to you, what he's saying there, the emphasis in that word is on delivering the message. But here in verse 5, he's saying this is what we proclaim to you, the nuance here in the Greek is he is saying, this is what we have received. We have become heralds, and we're proclaiming this news to you. We have effectively received this message, and we have authority to proclaim it. So he is talking about full reception of the gospel, okay? And then he goes on to proclaim it to you. And what does he proclaim? Who are those individuals who have truly received this message? Well, he tells us, if you look, he says, if we say, if we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. So if we say, and again, that's the same word, proclaim, if we're proclaiming that we know God while we go on living in sin, we're liars. And then there's a parallel statement. If we're walking in the light, So, in other words, if we have received the message, as he is in the light, we are having fellowship with one another. It's in the present active indicative. I want you to see that. If you have received the gospel, 
if you have come to know Jesus, you will desire to have fellowship with other believers. That's what John is saying there. He is saying that if we truly know God, we will want to be together. If you're in this room this morning and you have traditionally understood yourself to be an introverted person, I want you to know that the God you worship, the God you are called to imitate as image bearers, as those who are called to reflect the image of God, if you think of yourself as an introverted person, you need to know that the God you are called to imitate is outgoing. And this will be very difficult for you as a Christian because God is calling you as you reflect his image and his character to become an outgoing person as well. Jesus comes into this world to show us what life looks like. We talk about that. We talk about the fact that he comes to die on the cross, but just stop for a second and think about the meaning of Christmas. God is holy and pure and perfect. He cannot stand to look on sin. He cannot stand to be in the presence of sin. God, as he is in spirit, cannot die. And yet, he enters into this world to take on a human body, to die for our sins. He enters into this human world in which you and I live, and he comes right up next to sin. He gets as close to it as you and I are as close to it. Why? Why does he do that? Because he wants to have a relationship with you. You and I, because we're such sinners, we've become desensitized to sin. We can overlook things, and we're not particularly bound by justice and holiness like he is, and we can just kind of turn a blind eye and not pay attention. And our world is constantly falling into deeper and deeper darkness and greater despair as a result of it. But God has every reason not to come. But he comes to restore us to a relationship with him. He goes into the darkest, most heinous, most foul of circumstances, takes our sin on himself in order to have a relationship with us. And so if you're here this morning, you say to yourself, look, I'm not good in conversation, I'm shy, and I'm not outgoing, and I don't really enjoy having relationships with anyone, I just want to sit at home and drink my tea and just mind my own business... This statement here is going to be very difficult for you to hear. And I'll read it to you again. Look with me. Verse 7. There's a conditional clause. If we are walking in the light, as he is in the light, we are having fellowship with one another. Both of those verbs are in the present active, meaning it's something we're constantly doing. If we are in the light, we are going to be having fellowship with one another. You say, it doesn't say that explicitly. I know, I'd have to preach the whole book 
of 1 John to show you just how specific John is being. I won't do that today because we don't have the time for it. Or do we? No, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. (laughs) But I'm going to give you a few snippets to show you that this is what John is driving at. Remember, the context here is Gnosticism. These are individuals who believe that it only matters what you know. That's all that's necessary to get to heaven. It doesn't matter what you do. So there are two ways, and Dustin alluded to both of these in his prayer from earlier. There are two ways that we can destroy relationships. There are sins of omission, things God has called us to do that we don't do. And then there are sins of commission, things that we ought not to do, which we do. And so a lot of us in 21st century Western evangelicalism were real keen on not committing sins that we know are wrong, like don't lie, don't steal, don't cheat, don't murder. And we content ourselves to go home and to say, okay, so the meaning of Christmas is this, Jesus forgives me of my sins, and the life I'm supposed to live now is a life of not committing things, doing things I know I'm not supposed to do, such as lying, cheating, stealing, murdering. But you've ignored a whole category of sins that are well-defined in the Scripture. You may not be committing sins of commission, but as someone who's created in the image of God, you're also called to actively do certain things. And I fear that where we're at as 21st century Christians, evangelicals living in North America, is that we are drifting apart from each other and we're forsaking the fellowship of the body, and it's sin, and we don't know it's sin because we haven't been shown it. And if we live that way, we completely miss the point of Christmas. And maybe we've missed the point of the gospel. This is all throughout the book of 1 John. I'll give you a couple of quotes. First off, chapter 2, verse 9. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness even until now. So hating your brother is a no-go if you, if you follow Christ. You can't say you know Jesus while you're actively harboring hatred, bitterness, grudges, resentment against another believer. Chapter 3 and verse 10, By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. Now, you might be saying, how do we define righteousness there? Many ways that we can look at how John uses that word, but there's a parallel statement, another clause, which mirrors this statement. He says, anyone who does not practice righteousness is, is, of, is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Whatever we define righteousness to be, I think loving our brother is pretty clear. Chapter 3, verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death and into life. That is, we've had eternal life. And by eternal life, he doesn't mean length of life. He means quantity of life, the essence of what real life is. He says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. In other words, if you're questioning your salvation and you're not sure whether or not you really believe in Jesus and whether or not you're going to heaven, John offers one way that you can reassure yourself. He offers one way that you can have assurance. Do you love the brothers and sisters in your church? Do you love them? 
If you know Jesus, if you're saved and going to heaven, you will. You will. He goes on in that same verse, chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. He says, he who does not love abides in death. You're still in your sins. You're still in the grip of darkness. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Chapter 4, verse 8. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Chapter 4, verse 20 to 21. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he can see, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment that we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Wow. I mean, it's all throughout the whole book. It's repeated over and over and over again. The book is actually a case study in fellowship and what fellowship should look like. You and I, we're Baptists, so when I say fellowship, you're thinking potluck, right? Sure you are. Nothing wrong with that. Hey, I'm not. I'm a Baptist. Amen? Let's get some potluck going. I like potlucks. It means potluck. It means Bible study. It means coming to church on Sunday. And it doesn't mean I roll on in here like this is some sort of a Walmart, and I'm going to show up 15 minutes late and sneak out five minutes early. Say, ouch, if that's you. I love you. I'm kind of busy on Sunday mornings. You know it. But you also know if you come 15 minutes early, I'm right out there shaking your hand. You know what I could be doing with that time? I could be spending it in my office trying to fine-tune and tweak and memorize and last minute just make sure I got this thing drilled down. And there are Sundays in which I do that because I feel like the word is particularly important that Sunday. But 99% of the time, you know where I am? Out there. I'm out there 30 minutes early, and I'm out there an hour and a half after. Why do you think I do that? You know, I don't... This is going to sound heretical, but it's not. Just listen to me. I, I didn't come to Canada to actually be a preacher. I came to help with a church plant. The pastor who preceded me was gone inside of six weeks. He uh, had a family emergency. He had to move. It wasn't six weeks. It was about six months. He ended up having to move back to Florida. God bless him for that. It was a small church plant. They didn't have any money to hire a guy. And everybody was like, well do it. So I did. You may not know this, but like, it actually, I still get physically sick, sick to my stomach to preach on a Sunday morning. I have fear of public speaking. It's quite common. Do you know why I do it? A few of you have mentioned to me that you're quite blessed when I preach. I don't credit myself or think of myself as any great preacher. But if I have something that I can use to love you, all I know is that God loved me. And he loves you. And I'm called to love you. It's not just preaching. I do that to love you. But it also means talking to you and getting to know you and spending time with you. So does it mean potlucks? Yes, it does. 
Does it mean Bible studies? Yes, it does. Does it mean coming to church early, like 30 minutes early? I'm going to tell you right now, you guys really need to start doing this. I'm here, and I want to shake your hand in the foyer. I want to shake it before, and I want to shake it after. I want to talk to you before about how your week's been, and then I want to talk to you after about what God has spoken to your heart. I want to fellowship with you, and I want to do it all the time. You come in here, and I don't know what you're thinking, but like, this is hard work for me. You guys bless me. That's my sweet spot. It's getting to know you. Now, I'm getting very personal, and I apologize, but listen to the word once again. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you, that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship was with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. You may be introverted, but I wonder if it's only because you haven't tasted the sweetness of fellowship in its deepest, richest form. I was really struggling with this this week because when I think on Christmas, I know what it's all about. It's about being together. And God came because he wanted to be with us. And because he dies on on the cross for our sins, he enables us to actually enjoy each other's company in the fullness of life, the fullness of life that he wants us to enjoy and to have that for eternity. Yes, eternity is a part of it, but he wants us to have it now. That's his gift. Merry Christmas. And so if I'm walking with him, then I'm called to proclaim this message to you and to the whole world, whether I enjoy public speaking or not, is not mentioned anywhere in the text. What is mentioned is we got to proclaim it so that we can have more fellowship and that having more brothers and sisters come to be with us will bring us more joy. That's what the message is. Say, I don't like to do evangelism. I don't either, actually. It's awkward. You got to tell somebody really hard unpleasant news. Look, you're dying and you're going to hell. And you're a sinner. And the reason you're going to hell is because of your sins. But that's what has to be stated. So that they can know Christ and be forgiven. So that I can have fellowship and God can have fellowship with them. You say, I don't like coming to potlucks. Sometimes the food is weird. I know. So bring a dish. (laughs) No one says you have to show up empty-handed. Come with your favorite meal. Make sure you ladle out some soup or whatever your dish is for yourself. Save it to the side so you know you have something good to eat. That's fine. But come in fellowship. Come in fellowship. I, um, I do a, a lot of different things to serve this church. So does Pastor Ryan. So does Pastor Tyler. Uh, and, and the deacons as well. A, a lot of different people. But I was reflecting on this message because I know at the heart of Christmas what it is is we're called to have fellowship with each other. And and I I know because I have been introverted in my life and I know many of you would consider yourselves introverted and I knew this is going to sting, but here it is. To walk with Christ means you have to get out of your comfort zone. And if that's introversion, that means you have to start getting out of your introversion and spending time with people. And that can be hard to do. 
And one of the things I was convicted of this last week is at potlucks and different gatherings, because I know I'm not a natural conversationalist, do you know what I do? I busy myself with setting up chairs and tables. And then afterwards, I busy myself with cleaning up afterwards and sweeping and putting things away. And, and I did it even just this last Wednesday evening. And I knew in that moment, I'm like, man, like, I'm not the best at conversation, but there's a promise here. And I've been reading this text all week long. And I just know if I just, I got to talk to these people because there's joy in it. If I, somehow God's going to bring blessing to me if I can just get into a conversation and, and share with people and share about our common relationship with Jesus. Well, I didn't do it Wednesday because I chickened out. And then Thursday morning, I was supposed to get on a bus and go to Sunny Bray. And I had a little bit of a cough. I had a, a pretty serious cough at that time. And a runny nose and congestion a whole bit. And I was also a little bit paranoid about what people would say, you know, post-COVID. I'm on a bus with a bunch of seniors. What am I thinking? And also the Dallas Cowboys were playing on Thanksgiving. <laughs> None of that is legitimate, okay? I, I could have pushed myself to go, but I found reasons not to. And then Friday night, we're at the Pro-Life Pregnancy, Hopewell Pregnancy Care Center. And I made an effort to talk to a lot of people, but even then I was like, really, it's not natural to me. I want to not talk to people. And the whole week through, I'm like, God, like I'm just really struggling with this. I know this is what you've called me to do, and I need to do a better job of it. I'm going to go preach the meaning of Christmas on Sunday, and I know of all the hypocrites, I'm the biggest one. I got into a car yesterday with Pastor Al to go to Sunny Bray to do business, to attend the AGM. And we're driving. And you know, Pastor Al is not an introvert. You know that, right? You can accuse Pastor Al of many things. One thing he will never be is an introvert. And we're driving, and he's talking. And the good news about somebody like Pastor Al is you, you can have a great conversation because he does all the work, you know? Like, you just, he's, he's talking and talking and talking. You're like, hmm, tell me about that. And then he'll, he'll tell you about it, you know? Just talk and talk and talk. But I was praying the whole way from, from Wednesday night to yesterday morning. And I was like, Lord, show me. I need something practical, something to happen this week where I can share with them what joy in fellowship really looks like. And Pastor Al began to share with me about how he had been emailing some of his relatives who don't know the Lord. And he began to talk to me about back in 2008 when his granddaughter died. You, many of you may know this. She was brutally murdered. Um, and it was very, it was, you know, it was shocking. She was a young teenage girl, 13, 14 years old. And he began to talk about the heartache of that and what it was like. And he was telling me that he had been going back and reading his sermons from that time leading up to her death. And he had been preaching through Hebrews chapter 11, faith. And all throughout those sermons, he had found different ways that we have to trust God with what we have in life or what we're going through in life, and we have to put it in his hands. And he said to me, you know, two sermons before Emily was murdered, 
I was preaching on this particular character in Hebrews chapter 11, and the application that I gave to the church was this. Parents, can you trust the Lord with your children? Parents, can you trust the Lord if, and God forbid, but if the day comes in which in his goodness he chooses to take your child from you, can you trust him with that? Can you have that kind of faith? And I'm like trying not to swerve off the road. I'm like, yeah, that's a great story. Like, and I was really, really challenged in that moment. And then Pastor Al says to me, do you know what God was doing in my life at that time? Here I am serving as a minister of the word, preaching that word to the church. But those messages, God was using that word to shape me as a preacher to get my heart ready for the death of my granddaughter. Wow. So we went, we did our thing at Sunny Bray. I took him home, dropped him off. I go home, do you know what I do? I'm like on my laptop reading every sermon for like the last two years. I'm like, what are you saying to me, God? And do you know what I discovered? I had led a Bible study two months before the pandemic on the importance of worshiping God. I had preached it from Samuel when a plague struck Israel and had killed thousands of people, and David went out in the midst of the, this pandemic and still worshiped God. And I had no idea that's what I was preaching on. But I just remember walking away at that time. I was like, I know that worshiping God is like important and we should always worship God. Like that was just like the application. No matter what, you should worship God. And I didn't even realize it when the pandemic struck, but I already had that conviction that the Lord was nurturing in my heart. We should worship God. You see, we can't really see it on the front end sometimes. When we're going into a situation, we can't really understand how God is working and shaping us to get ready. But we can see it on the back end sometimes. But none of that, none of that would have been known to me if I hadn't had fellowship with my brother. Listen to what Jude says. I pray, this is Paul writing to Philemon, not Jude, sorry. I'm on Dayquil. I, I can't remember, I'm getting confused up here, but listen. Paul writing to Philemon, I pray that the sharing of your faith, and he's using the same word, koinonia, fellowship. I pray that the fellowship of your faith will become effective for a full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. That's what happened to me yesterday. And you know what? God answered my prayer because that's what I was praying for all week. And so I got home. I'm like, yep, I got the conclusion of my sermon. It's ready to go. But that's not really the conclusion. You got to have fellowship. There's joy waiting for it on the other side. But do you know what else? The one you're called to have fellowship with most of all is Jesus Christ. If you're still in 1 John, this is what it says. 
It says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we will, we are having fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Woody Allen gave an interview several years ago in which, and Woody Allen is a movie, theater, a movie maker, he's very famous, and uh, he doesn't believe in God, he's an atheist, and somebody sat down and, and did an interview with him in which uh, they asked him if he did believe in God, what would he want God to say to him? What would he most want to hear from God? And Woody Allen stared off into space for a good minute during this interview, thinking about it. And then he finally said, do you know what I would most want God to say to me if there were such a thing as God? I'd want to hear him say these three words. You are forgiven. You see, the relationship has been broken because of our sin. But what we're called to is fellowship. And what Woody Allen is talking about is he's, he doesn't believe in God, he denies God, but we know he really understands the truth that there is a God. And in his heart, he knows that what he needs in life is he needs that fellowship, he needs that relationship to be restored, and he's not going to have it so long as he continues in his sin. And he knows that the only way he would ever have it is if somehow his sins could be forgiven. He rejects Christ, he refuses to acknowledge the payment of the cross, but yet when asked, what would you most want to hear God say if there were a God putting himself into that hypothetical scenario, he comes to the understanding that if there is a God, he should have a relationship with him, and his sins have kept him from that relationship. And so the three words he most would want to hear, you are forgiven. But do you know what? You will never hear those three words unless you first hear yourself saying three little words. If you would hear these three words from God, you are forgiven. You had better first hear yourself saying these three words about yourself. I have sinned. If you can acknowledge that, John makes the promise. You want to have fellowship. You want to be reconciled to God. If we walk in the light, he says, if we confess our sins, verse 9, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So as you're here today, I've gone long with my personal story, but this is deeply personal to me. My prayer for you is that you would want to have fellowship. And if that's not even the desire of your heart, you need to question your relationship with God because that's what Christmas is all about. If you're here today and you're just like me and you know you've struggled in this, it's a sin of omission. You're called to love your brothers and sisters. You can be cleansed. Jesus is ready to wash you and cleanse you. My prayer for you is that we would fellowship together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. And I just pray, Lord, as we enter into Christmas, as we think about what it means, Emmanuel, God with us, I pray, Lord, that we would know it means we have relationship with you And because of you, we have relationships, meaningful fellowship with each other. Do that work in us, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.